counts us a great privilege to be here this morning. And just before we open God's Word, I want to mention two important things. We have some young fellows over here at the door. We're taking a survey of our campus with regard to your beliefs concerning Bible and science issues. It'd be very important for us if we could have you cast your vote as to how you understand the relationship between the Bible and science by simply checking off a three-question sheet, and those folks will be over here at the right after chapel. Secondly, tomorrow it is our privilege to have Dr. Lumsden, an internationally known creation scientist, come to our campus. He will be here and give a lecture at 5.30 in Rack 14. That's the biology lab for most of you. Uh, there will be no fetal pigs tomorrow. But Dr. Lumsden will be there and uh, we'll have a chance to hear his expertise on Bible and science issues, something which will make you a more effective apologist for God's Word. This morning, as we open God's Word, I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn to what I consider the most important book of the New Testament, 2 Timothy, and to a verse which, for me, is my life verse, 2.15. 2 Timothy 15. 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Dear Father, this morning we've not come to hear eloquence or music or enthusiasm. We've come to worship and to praise you and to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Only he, as your lamb, is worthy to receive that praise. And Lord, in a group such as this, we ask that your spirit would be speaking to hearts, convicting us of what we should do to honor and glorify and to show ourselves approved unto you people who do not need to be ashamed and who can accurately handle your word. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We must begin this morning in 2 Timothy in chapter 4. You see, it's about 67 A.D., 33 years after Christ died, roughly. Paul writes... This second, his last epistle, his swan song, actually, to his true son in the faith, Timothy. It's written towards the end of Nero's reign. Paul had had an imprisonment on a minor offense in 59 AD, during which time Nero, things were going fairly well for him. And Paul was given permission to uh, rent a house, and he wrote Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. He was released in 62 A.D., and we believe he probably went from there on to his fourth missionary journey to Spain. But in 62 A.D., Nero's luck changed. As a result of replacing his once competent servants with a bunch of incompetents, the empire started to crumble. And then after the outbreak of fire in Rome, Nero found the perfect scapegoats. He found a small sect called Christians on whom... He could blame all of his ills. They were thrown into the arena. They were tied in skins to be 
worried to death by dogs, thrown to wild beasts. Some of them were taken and made stakes and burning torches to light his garden as he rode around in the, the night skies gloating over their deaths. And Paul was arrested by Nero's secret agents, brought back to Rome, given a mock trial, and he now has finished in Roman jurisprudence that first phase of the trial. He now is in the Mamertine prison in Rome, a dark, lonely place where no one really knows where he's at, looking out the jailhouse window, God's best man imprisoned. You have to wonder what God's doing sometimes. But God has a plan through all of this. And we hear Paul, as he looks out that jail cell, say this in chapter 4 of Timothy. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, that righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then a very, very personal note. Make every effort to come to me very soon, Timothy. For Demas, having loved this present world, has forsaken me. All of this focuses down to 2 Timothy 2.15. And I'd like for you today to take a pen and piece of paper out because I want to give you today from Paul's death cell his last three important questions for life. The three questions that have made the most in my life, have made the most in Timothy's life, made the most difference in Paul's life, are found in 2 Timothy 2.15. I was mentioning to Dr. Stead, I'm amazed that in the last 10 years there has been very little written on 2 Timothy 2.15. But from this passage here, 2 Timothy 2.15, which as many of you know, is Awana's key verse, God wants to give you the three principles for winning the Christian life, for living an approved Life. Here they are in 2 Timothy 2.15. Is the Lord well pleased? Is the labor well done? Is the logos well used? Three questions that come from that verse. Listen to it again. Be diligent. Literally, make it your aim in life. Aristotle said, like archers, we stand a better chance of hitting the target or the mark if we can see it. What is the mark in the Christian life? These are the three goals. Paul then tells Timothy, Timothy, make it your aim to present yourself approved to God. Approved to God. What does that mean? Paul has told all of us in books like Romans, we're to present as an act of spiritual worship ourselves as living sacrifices to him. We're to present to him a living sacrifice, but you know the problem with the living sacrifice 
is it wants to crawl off the altar. And in this verse, Paul's saying to Timothy, Look, Tim, your name means honoring God. Present yourself approved unto God. What does that mean? You know, it means this, that we have to be very careful in what we offer to God. I can remember about two years ago, we went to my mother-in-law's and it, we, we were getting ready for Christmas. And my mother-in-law was very excited because she had gone to some garage sales and had found some very, very fine leaded crystal chalices. And she was going to mail these back to her daughter in Ohio. And she said, oh, they're wonderful, they're very expensive, and of course I got a great deal on them. We said, well, we would really like to see these wonderful uh, glasses before you, you send them back. Have you opened them up? No, not at all. So finally, after a lot of talking to her, we, we got her to find the, the, uh, the chalices and she brought the package out and she opened it up and there, as she presented the first chalice to us, our hearts were filled with horror because as we looked at that chalice, which was so costly, it was filled to the very brim with dead cockroaches. Can you imagine should she have shipped that back to Ohio as a Christmas gift to her lovely daughter? Six wonderful leaded precious chalices, each filled with cockroaches. How they got in there, we don't know. We think there was something sweet in and they crawled in and died. But you know, we have to be careful about what we present to God. We're very costly. God has chosen us. And yet, what we choose to fill our lives with may or may not please Him. You see, this word approved is a very interesting word. The word is dokimos in Greek. Dokimos. D-O-K-I-M-O-S. If you have a chance, I would recommend this word as a word study to you because it's a very interesting word. Dokimos means accepted. It means pleasing. It means tried under fire and found to be genuine. And Dokimos has the particular element of it went under the fire, it was tested, it was examined, and it was found to be worthy. It was approved. Dokimos has a very interesting connotation to it. You see, if you trace this word not only through the New Testament, but also to the Old Testament where it's used in the Septuagint, you'll find something very interesting about this word. It is a word connected with coins and metals and the refining of those ores. As you know, ore is mined from the ground. It's brought up, it's crushed, it's put in a crucible, it's fired until it liquefies, the dross is removed. It's a very interesting process. I can remember two years ago having gone to South Africa. Johannesburg is about 6,000 feet above the ground. And we went to a mining town, and there the fellow said, we're going to be descending almost a mile down into the ground. That would have put us roughly at sea level. We're going to go down there to a working gold mine, and I want you to know right now, when we get to where the six-inch vein of gold is, you can dig out all the ore that you want. Woo! I don't know about you. 
But uh, suppose they told you that you could go down and fill your pockets with as much gold as you wanted. Well, I got a little excited about that. And uh, we went down, and after an hour of crawling through three-foot-wide passages in very intense heat because there's nowhere for the heat to go, we finally reached a very small cavern. It was quite dangerous. I began wondering whether this was such a great idea after we had been crawling around for 45 minutes. I couldn't have found my way out. And every once in a while, my guide would point to one of the, the beams holding up the ceiling saying, we think that's the only support for this whole section. Don't kick that out. <clears throat> I knew I was in a life-threatening situation. We got to a small cavern, and there a group of 30 black fellows were working very, very diligently to mine the ore out. And my guide pointed to the wall, and he said, There it is. Help yourself. And I looked over on the wall, and there, along the wall, was six inches of what was absolutely black rock. It looked like coal. I said, Are you sure that's gold? He said, That's it. He said, We're digging that out. We're taking it up to the surface. Well, I got a big hunk of that coal, uh, that ore that was gold that looked like coal to me, and I put it in my pocket, and I took it with me. But you see, it was absolutely valueless. It was dirty. It was worked in with all kinds of impurities. And up on the surface, they took me to a refining room. There they would stamp the ore, and they would put it into a sand crucible. This was the same as in the Old Testament. They would fire that crucible up to a tremendous temperature and the gold would liquefy and separate from the dross. And then a workman would take and skim the dross from that gold. Now in the Old Testament the process was slightly different. They would put some ash along the inside of the sand crucible and the dross would stick to that. In Egypt they would refine this process of gold at least three times or more and in Psalms, God tells us about some gold being refined seven times, which would be a perfect refining process. This word approved is wedded in the Old Testament to the word pure gold. It was the gold used in the temple, pure gold, approved gold. And the idea behind approval is this, that God fires you up in the consequences of your life and the circumstances of the semester. We're entering the second phase. There's going to be tremendous pressure put upon you. Lots of heat. Lots of things to do. In the process of this semester, in the crucible of life, you're going to be fired and put under trial. But he's doing it to show you approved. First thing about the word approved. It means approved, tested, with the purpose of showing it to be genuine. You see, this word has influenced my educational practice. You see, when I give an examination in my class, I want to examine you to show that you are approved. That is what God does. He gives you tests you can pass, and you can pass well. God never tests us for disapproval. Did you notice that? God tests you for approval to show you genuine. He never tests you to disapprove you. That is Satan's work, and that's the word tempt. God tempts no man. In James 
chapter 1, verse 12, this word dakimos is used again. It says this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Once he has been approved, he'll receive the crown of life. And then in verse 13, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God can't be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. First thing to note today, God wants you to be approved. He wants your faith to be shown to be genuine. He says that in Peter chapter 1, verse 7. He wants you to be found worthy. Satan wants to disqualify you. And so, as I said, in my educational practice, I give domain-specific tests. I test for mastery. That versus SAT tests, which we've all taken, where they ask you a body of questions which you can't hope to answer all of them for. The word approval also has this idea of being fired in the pot and being refined and having the dross removed from your life. You see, you are approved when the workman looks into the metal of your life and the reflection of his own face is seen in the metal of your life. Did you catch that? To be approved, to be pleasing to God means this, that in the course of your life, as different circumstances and trials come along, there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. God will not suffer you to be tempted above that what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape. You remember that, 1 Corinthians 10.13. God will never turn up the heat more than necessary. And in the crucible of life, He's going to fire up and liquefy you to bring you to the place so that dross is removed from your life. So that when people look at you, they no longer see your imperfections and your foibles and your failings. They see his own face reflected in the metal and character of your life. Did you catch that? That is the most attractive thing in the world. When your neighbors see the genuineness of your faith as you go through some crisis or trial, should it be the loss of a loved one, should it be an illness, should it be a tragedy, should it be a robbery like one of our Christian bookstores over here, people are watching you, what will they see reflected? Your foibles, your feelings, or will they see the beauty of Jesus Christ? If you're pleasing God, They'll see his own dear face. So there comes the first question for life to ask you yourself in the morning and in the evening. Is the Lord well pleased? Is the Lord well pleased? If you can say, yes, he is, you've met the first qualification for success, for an approved life before God. Also, would you notice about this word approved? A tremendous psychological benefit. Do you know you're going to meet people in life that will never be satisfied with what you do for them? You're going to meet situations in which you will never be satisfied with what's happening to you. But the only one who has to be pleased in life is not them, is not ourselves. The only person we have to please is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if He's pleased, that's all that matters. Friends, I can't tell you what a great relief that is to know in our day and age. 
Is the Lord well pleased? But you see in this verse, there's a second goal in life. And it's in this fashion stated, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. And that brings us to our second question for success or approved life. Is the labor well done? Is the labor well done? Is the Lord well pleased? Is the labor well done? I'd like to suggest to you that there's two reasons why our labor may make us ashamed. And you know in the Greek, this is a very strong word for ashamed. Absolutely dishonored. Two reasons. The first is found earlier in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, where Paul is talking about a fellow who's competing as an athlete. And we had our team up here today. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, you can see there in verse 5, Paul says, If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. You see, the first reason we'll be ashamed of our labor is if we don't compete, if we don't labor according to his standards. God has standards in the Christian life. Our world says there are no standards, or the standards will change, or we watch Christians, TV evangelists or whoever, changing the standards and seemingly get away with anything at all. But God hasn't changed His standards. He is still holy. He is still looking for lives that are holy, completely offered to Him and pleasing to Him, and He's looking for people that meet His specifications. People that compete according to his rules. What does God want from you? Would take us a long time. But you know, he said it very carefully. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what he wants. He doesn't want your performance. He doesn't want your money. He wants you to work for him according to his specifications. If you're ever involved in a ministry and they are not using the specifications of God's Word to raise money correctly or to disperse it correctly, that ministry market will be ashamed and it will fail. I've met a very graphic example of that here in California if you get a chance to visit it. It's up in Winchester, California, called the Winchester House. There a lady has constructed a monstrosity She has a house that has been built with all sorts of doors and cupboards and rooms that are completely dysfunctional. There were no plans or specifications. You see, she was told by a spirit she would live so long as she kept building on her home. I halfway think it was a carpenter out of work whistling down the vents of the house. But uh, she hired contractors. And they began constructing staircases to nowhere, cupboards that would not open to anything, doors that went no place. The house is a monstrosity. And it's not hard to find ministries or lives that meet the same disorganized standards. They do anything. They try this for a while and then something else. They follow their own heart, which is so deceitful and desperately wicked, none of us know it. But God says... He has standards, specifications. So, what is the labor? What is the labor that's well done? It is according to his specifications. But should you get nothing else today, would you note this? There's a second way that your labor 
will be well done. And that is found in 2 Samuel 24, 24. Would you turn there for just a moment? 2 Samuel 24, 24. God has given us an example of the second qualification for labor that is well done. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, the context is that God has David here in a very interesting situation. If I ask you what David's worst sin was, you might say it was falling in adultery with Bathsheba. But I'd like to say to you, I think that in terms of people who lost their lives, his greatest sin is found in 2 Samuel 24, where David sins in numbering the people, and as a result, more than 70,000 die. And David, as a result of a sin, sees the avenging angel over Jerusalem, hovering above the threshing floor of Arana. He runs up there to offer a sacrifice. And as he comes up, Arana says, Oh, my lord, the king, listen, look, you want a sacrifice. Here's my oxen for the sacrifice. Here are my tools. Use them as the firewood. I give it all. It's a freebie. And then David says the most un-American thing imaginable. He says, no. I mean, can you imagine this? Turning down a freebie. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, David says this. However, the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Did you hear that? The labor which is well done is according to his specifications, and the labor which is well done is with sacrifice. That labor has to cost us something. Now, I know many of my students are very fine students. They're 4.0. But, you know, I have hidden in the depths of my heart a suspicion that maybe some of them are still not performing to their best. God wants our best. He wants what's going to cost us something. You know how it is when it comes to the Lord's work. If you've been in it very long, you've discovered it's the old refrigerator that's no good at home anymore that's given to the church. It's that old beat-up bus that you couldn't make it go another mile that you donate to be used at the church or to the mission agency. Or like the very tragic account that I heard in Africa. A young lady had been there with her parents as missionaries for many years, and she really only had one great desire in her life, and that was a full-length white dress. They prayed that that would come to them. And one day a package came from the United States. It was labeled to these missionaries in particular, and they hurriedly ripped it open, and there inside was clothing. And as they sorted out the clothing, wouldn't you know, there was the white dress. The young gal was so excited, she grabbed it, dashed off to her bedroom, and was putting it on when suddenly her mother heard a shriek. She ran in, and there her daughter was standing with the white dress on, crying her heart out. And she said, what's wrong? 
You have the desire of your heart. And the girl raised her arms. And there under each of the arms and the armpits were terrible, large, yellow stains. You see, that dress wasn't good enough for somebody in the United States, but certainly good enough for the Lord's work in Africa. I mean, after all, what are you offering to God? What kind of labor are you giving Him? Is your labor costing you something? Would you note the service that counts is the service that costs? And I think you would find it very, very particular to note that the faculty at this college, to a man, to a woman, have made a sacrifice. I think of Dr. Howe, who is one of the faculty, premier faculty in the science division, a man that could have been at any institution in this nation and yet chose to remain here at Los Angeles Baptist College and now the Master's College to give his life to train young people. You see, his prayer was not for a larger garden, but for better seeds. And that's the prayer we have, that we can train you students through the sacrifice to offer to God the labor that is well done. Well, that's it. Is the Lord well pleased? He is. If people see his face reflected radiantly in your life, despite the circumstances and trials, is the labor well done? It is. If you're working according to if you're working with sacrifice. Now that brings us to the third and the last very important question for life. And that's this. Handling accurately the word of truth. And that last question is this. Is the logos well used? Is the logos well used? Are you using God's word well in your life? What does that mean? Well, interestingly enough, this handling accurately is one word in Greek. It's the word orthotomio. Ortho meaning right, tomio meaning cutting, or cutting it right, cutting it straight. Now you've met that word, tomi, in various words that you uh, have come across, haven't you? If you have an appendix and it needs to be cut out, what do they call that? I'm sorry, I can't hear you. An appendectomy, yes, that's correct. And if you have a tonsil or tonsils that need to be removed, those are then you have that surgery. It's called a tonsil tonsillectomy, correct. Now what do they call it when they cut a growth off your head? A haircut, right. Alright, this is a this is a cutting word. This is a cutting word here. Orthotomio. Cut it straight. Cut it straight. What does it mean to cut God's word straight? Well, number one, it means that you use it correctly. God tells us in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is sharp and powerful, sharper than any two-edged machaira. You remember when Dr. MacArthur spoke on the armor of God, a machaira is about 18 inches long. It's a close-order defense weapon. The Roman soldier had this great door of a leather shield 
to quench the darts, but he had to move in very, very tight and close to draw out his makaira, and it was a close-order defense weapon. When he got in close, he would use it to surgically strike his enemy. You see, that's important because the Word of God is not a broadsword. God wants us to use it surgically. Let me illustrate. Some people in South Africa that I met, the man had a bald spot right here on the back of his head. And I asked uh, his wife, uh, uh, how did that occur? She said, oh, it's very simple. She said, you see, when we first were saved, I would say on Sunday, we need to go to church. And he said, oh, I don't think I'm going today. And I take my Bible and hit him right on the back of the head. And so that's why he's got that spot there. I think they were funning me. But you know, have you ever done that? Have you ever taken your Bible and hit somebody with it? The Bible says, but you don't tell them where it says it. I know you would never do something so unspiritual as this, but there have been some of my relatives who have dusted off the Bible and made sure it was on the, uh, the dresser or strategically placed in the house before a certain somebody came. We need to not use God's word as a broadsword. We need to use God's word as a scalpel, surgically to remove the bad from the good, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those who we counsel. See, that's the problem with psychology today. It only works on the mind. It can even work on an unbeliever. What we need is God's word to cut away the good from the bad and heal. God's word... God's Word. How do you correctly apply God's Word? You know, in Ephesians 6.17, we're told the Word of God is the sword, the makaira of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You notice that we have the word Word, W-O-R-D, here in 2 Timothy 2.15, but the Greek word there is logos. It's not the same word in Ephesians 6.17. That's why I want to point this one out. It is Rima. You see, God tells us that the Holy Spirit uses His Word as a Rima, a short passage of God's Word, a memory verse, we would call it, that we have hidden in our hearts for that perfect time when we are tempted. Satan comes to test us and try us and make us fall. And we will use God's Word surgically because we have hidden His Word in our hearts. We know, like Jesus, when he was tempted of Satan, and Satan said, look, you're God, make those stones bread. He quoted Deuteronomy 8, man shall not live by bread alone. He had memorized a portion of God's word, made it his own, and saved up that makaira of the spirit, that rima, that short passage of God's word, that the spirit could take and ram home to Satan at the strategic part point. You get the point? When Satan comes to tempt you, if you've memorized God's word, you can ream him with a rima from God's word, a short memory verse, a passage of scripture that you've hidden. But did you, did you notice you had to have planned for this before so you know God's word? Let me challenge you. Are you memorizing God's word? I know this is Master's College. I know you're studying the Bible. But are you studying it as a textbook or are you making it real? Are you applying it to yourself? 
Are you hiding it so that it can be used strategically in the life of the hurting people who have the cancers of sin that need to be healed? We have to cut it straight. Well, there's the three points. Is the Lord well pleased? If our lives are clean and they see Jesus reflected in our lives, no matter the trial, then he's pleased. Is the labor well done? If we're working according to his specifications and with sacrifice, the answer will be yes. Is the logos well used? Is the word of truth well applied? Or am I cutting it straight? Am I using God's thoughts, his concepts, his reason, his logos, to motivate my life and to shape the pattern for my life? If the answer to those three questions, morning and evening, is yes, then one of these days, like a dear friend of mine, a triathlete, a young man, in the prime of health two weeks ago, dropped dead just like that. One of these days you will say with Paul, the time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I fought a good fight because I fought to please the Lord. I have finished my course. My labor was done well. I ran the race fairly and squarely. I didn't cut any corners. And I have kept the faith. I've handed it off to those coming behind me. I've trained faithful and good servants. You know, in any congregation like this, God is at work. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Did you know it's possible for a person to come to Master's College, to study the Bible as a textbook, to play on an athletic team, or to conduct a major in mathematics? and never to have actually met Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? I'm wondering today, as you think about your life, what are you offering to God? What are you, that tremendous, precious masterpiece, handcrafted by Him? For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What have you done with that masterpiece of his workmanship? What have you filled your life with? Not too long ago, my dad was struck with a very severe heart attack. I stood there for three days watching his life ebb away. And as I went to the waiting room one day, I picked up the newspaper read a short article about a young student in reading England. He was a music major, played the violin. And every day he would come home and he would put his violin in the corner. Some days he probably would toss it over there. Didn't give it much thought. But one morning he got up, went outside, and as he went to the bottom where the uh, parking lot was for his apartment complex, a bus driver said, Son, could you give me a hand? I need to back the bus out. And the young man sat his violin down and was directing the bus driver when suddenly he heard 
a tremendous crash, and the bus ran over his violin. He went over and started to collect the pieces, and as he did, he turned over what once had been the back of the violin, and looking to the inside, he saw the word Stradivarius. You see, he had been the owner of a priceless masterpiece, and only until the day it was gone did he know what it was really worth. So we have every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around this morning. As our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, I'm wondering if there isn't a student or a visitor here today, God speaking to your heart just now, to commit your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You know that should you die right now, you'd be lost in your sins. You could not give him an adequate reason to come into his heaven. But today you'd like to be sure of your relationship to him. Why not take this moment and in prayer confess to him that you are a sinner, that you believe he died to save you and rose again from the dead, and that you want him to be your Savior and your Lord. And this morning, as God's Spirit speaking to our hearts, what is his Spirit convicting you of? Is there something you filled your life with that is not pleasing to God? Some labor that you've done that you know it has been faulty, damaged, without sacrifice? Is there someone that you need to go to and cut God's word straight with them so that they can be healed? Father, you know our hearts today. We commit ourselves to you, never knowing when it will be our last day. We thank you for using us to lift the name of Jesus higher for his sake. Amen. Thank you, and you're dismissed.